Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Picture Blurfect with your host, Naomi Harlan Bacchus Wilkerson. How's everyone doing? How's the week been? How are you feeling? I'm doing well. I'm, I always record these on Sundays, so I always get the Sunday scaries. <laughs> You've heard me say it before, but it's really hitting in strong today. I just dread the upcoming week. It, and the weekends always go by so fast. And there's just always so much to do. But by the time I have my chores done and every all the errands that you have to run, then there's just not really any time to relax and recuperate from the week. And then you do it all over again. <laughs> so it's always the struggle. Um, last week, we took our dog for the first time to doggy daycare. I really want to try and get her just acclimated to places that you know are not used to her home because we got her right in the middle of the pandemic. So we really just stayed home and she didn't really go to dog parks or anything because we stayed away from people. But I really want to get her used to doggy daycare. And then eventually when we have to board her, uh, we would, you know, she would just enjoy it and be used to that, the whole surroundings. Because typically when we went on trips, we would always meet halfway to my sister who lives in Durham, North Carolina. We would just meet somewhere in Virginia and drop drop her off and she would go and stay with them. And she really loves their dog. And it was just a really nice setup. But that's just not really a sustainable strategy. So I really wanted to find some place close by. And let me tell you, when I dropped her off, I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do when I have actual kids and they go to school because I'm not okay. I was just a royal mess. <laughs> just kind of, I really wanted to cry. But the good thing with this place is they have like cameras where you can, with a password, go in and you can watch your dog interact and everything. And so this whole time, like I was just sitting there watching the video and just watching her, but she was having a ball. She did not miss us whatsoever. She just had the time of her life. Apparently it was French fry Friday and she got French fries and she just like, when we went to go pick her up, the people were like, oh my gosh, she went nuts. And we were like, yeah, yeah. Cause we never feed her people food. (laughs) Um, But anyway, she's, she's, my darling angel. I love her so much. She's sitting on her bed right next to me. And I just, oh, so yeah, that was a big, big growth moment for me, you know, like learning to let go. (laughs) Anyway, that's a little bit about what's going on in my life. Um, what, What are we doing this week? This week, we have a very, very special episode. I'm so excited to bring you guys this episode. We're going to talk about lived experience. And I want to try and incorporate this a little bit more to hear some real stories from real people, from real listeners out there that have gone through eating disorders or some kind of mental health disorder and how recovery, how they're going through recovery because it's it's a never-ending process. It's not like one day you wake up and you're like, yep, I'm done recovering. I'm fully recovered. <laughs> like it just doesn't happen that way. And I don't, we could talk about this in a whole episode, but are you ever really fully recovered? Uh, that's, a, that's a question that I think should be answered up to each person. Um, it just depends because that definition is different for every person. Every person's journey is different. So I'm so excited to bring to you this episode. We have three amazing individuals that have come, Adam, Blanca, and Aggie. They are just wonderful human beings, and I can't wait for you all to hear their stories. And I want to thank Aggie, Blanca, and Adam again for coming on the episode and opening up your heart and sharing your story, because that is so brave. And I want others listening to know that It's a really freeing experience once you get used to the idea and the confidence to kind of share your thoughts and your feelings about what going through an eating disorder, for example, is like, and you're not alone. And so I hope that this episode really brings that to the forefront and you really understand that. Um, So without further ado, I will stop talking and we will get to the interview. (music) 
we are here on Picture Blurfect with a very special episode on lived experience. So I am delighted to have everyone here today to talk about their experience with eating disorders, mental health, just in general, how they are going life through recovery, which is such an important topic. So before we get started, let's just go around the room and have everyone introduce themselves, the name, your name, where you're located, your current occupation and work, if you would like to share that. Um, so yeah. Whoever would like to start. I can go ahead and start. My name, well, first of all, Naomi, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Very excited to be here. Um, But my name is Aguila Bow. I'm currently in St. Louis, Missouri. I work at Washington University um, as a post-bac research assistant. So I'm doing eating disorder and obesity uh, research. So very relevant to today's conversation. Um, Yeah, very excited to be here. Amazing. Um, well, hello, my name is Blanca. First of all, thank you, Naomi, for this great opportunity to be here and, and share our stories. Um, I'm also, as same as Aggie, I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. I work at Washington University, too, as a postdoc. I am working in uh, mental illnesses like schizophrenia or depression. Uh, a little bit different of this today's topic. Uh, but I also work with animal models and and yeah, that's, I'm very interested in mental health and of course, from our past experience in eating disorders. So yeah, really excited to be here. Hi, I'm Adam. I am, yeah, thank you so much, Naomi, for having me on as well. I'm obviously, I'm from the UK. Um, so I'm from the Northwest of the UK um, near the Lake District. Um, and yeah, I don't sort of work in the field of mental health or eating disorders. I work as a traffic planner um, in the construction industry. Um, but I do a lot of work sort of on social media with training providers, with um, charities as well to sort of help raise awareness um, from sort of maybe a different perspective. So I look at the intersectionalities between eating disorders, disabilities, and sort of ev- trying to be as inclusive as possible and build those inclusive models to help people live their best quality of lives, I guess. Um, and it's, real real interest of mine sort of increase my knowledge but help you know empower other people to bring their voice to the table as well exactly exactly no and i love each of you for coming here today and and sharing your your story your thoughts and perspective um you each have such a wonderful um perspective to offer. So you all have an amazing story, a story about living with, recovering from, and adjusting to life with an eating disorder or some kind of mental illness. So the fact that you are all here and and you're brave enough to come here and share your stories and and just really opening up your heart on this podcast is just so tremendous. And I can't thank you all enough. So I like to go around the room and just hear from each of you briefly, just a little quick snippet of, of your story. So your personal struggle and then when you realized it was time to seek help, because I think that's the hardest part, right? And later in the podcast, we can kind of dive into more specifics, but like, when did you realize that it was time to, to get some help? What a big question. (laughs) (laughs) So I have always, this is Aggie. I've always struggled with my body image and food and exercise from when I was a very young age. Um, And when I got to college, I think pressure I put on myself to succeed in all realms of my life and be perfect in all realms of my life um, kind of caught up to me. And I really started turning to food and exercise um, 
to kind of, I guess, control, like, or get a sense of control, some sense of control, something I could really perfect in my mind. Um, so yeah, I think I faced a lot of pressures in college and I, there was people around me. I was constantly comparing myself to trying to do it all. Um, I went out a lot drinking culture also, I feel like is very, um, uh, closely like connected with diet culture as well. Like there's a lot of like behaviors people use sometimes like before they're going to drink. Um, and I kind of got caught up in that surrounded myself with peers who were doing that. So that really caused my struggles to escalate. Um, in my sophomore year, by my sophomore year of college, like food and exercise definitely controlled my life. Um, and I came home first from spring break or for spring break. Um, and my parents were like, oh my goodness, like what is going on? Like they were so concerned. Um, and I was like, nothing is going on. I'm totally great. Like I'm the healthiest I've ever been. Um, I, yeah, the eating disorder was fooling me. I, I really thought I had it all together, but I did not. Um, and then, yeah, the struggles continued. And when I came home from for summer break, um, that's when I was like, man, like my quality of life is like really not great right now. <laughs> like I'm just living like solely to like control my food and exercise. And um, yeah, it was just a really hard time for me. And I didn't really have plans for the summer. Um, I was just going to like tutor and teach piano, which I had done in the past. Um, and I just remember this one day, like my dad, I mean, my parents were like constantly expressing concern over me. Um, and my dad asked me like when the last time I felt alive was, he was like, when is the last time you felt alive? And I was like, I have no idea. Like I've not felt alive in so long. Like I just have not felt, you know, <laughs> happy in such a long time, which is like terrible, but it's because the eating disorder was really controlling my life. Um, and that's, I think the moment when I was like, man, I like need to fix this. Um, so yeah, I think it, I was in denial for a really long time. And even after he asked me that question, I was still in denial. I ended up um, going into residential treatment for my eating disorder that summer. And I, the whole time I was there, I was like, I should not be here. Like my problems are not nearly as bad as like the other people's who are here. Um, but I think it was really what I needed at that time in my life. And was quite a reality check for me that yeah, what, how I was living before was not sustainable or life-giving to me in any way. So yeah, I went to treatment for the whole summer. And then that was kind of like when my recovery journey began, I would say. Um, and I'm really grateful that my struggles like didn't last a super long time, like only like about a year before I got treatment. And yeah, that I was able to get treatment. <laughs> that's like yeah. such a privilege. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my story. <laughs> I don't know. That's a oh. tough question to answer, but no, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. Of course. Oh, my God. Okay. This is Blanca. Now it's my turn. <laughs> well, I have to say that my first, um, Meeting with my eating disorder was almost 20 years ago, the first time that I got it. Um, I was probably 16 years old, probably. And actually, it started in a very weird way. I was never obsessed with exercise or food or anything else. I really didn't have any like body image problem. But it's true that my personality is always has always been very perfectionist. I've always wanted to be the best in everything that I was doing. So... 
in the relationship in my house with my parents, I was always trying to be the best daughter with everything, with school, with university, with friends, with everything. And I think that at some point I lost control of my own abilities and I just like focused on being the best at everything. And in this case, at some point I just started doing exercise and as I did with everything else, I just went the whole way around. Like I just went I pushed forward so much. I was the best at the university. I was the best as the best friend. And I was the best also as doing exercise and controlling my food. So at some point I lost control of that. And I just completely got caught by anorexia. Um, I was in denial for approximately two years until there was like no way that I could like physically stay longer. So I was like literally took to the ER and like the emergency room and I I got like um I was in the hospital for a few months getting treatment to try to just like recover minimally uh, and then from there I also without leaving the hospital I went like through um a special ED treatment there until I got well enough to continue at home so after that um I can say that it's been like almost 10, 15 years that my ED has been kind of like in standby. Um, I think now I think I can say that I never recovered completely because um, after some years, um, I finally end up like my pharmacy degree and I I finished my PhD and then I, I came here to the States to, to do my postdoc in 2020. I just moved before the covid pandemic really started to shut everything down so it was bad timing um and i think that during 2020 my my whole world completely got uh, out of control which was precisely one of my weaknesses not having uh, everything under control so during those months i really really struggled with mental health i i couldn't like understand what was going to happen to me, my family, I couldn't go back. I was like freaking out what is going to happen. So of course I focused on one thing that I could control, which was basically food and exercise. So I had a huge relapse in December, 2020. Um, and of course uh, people around me were starting to realize that things were, were not good. And I tried to avoid any Zoom call with my parents. I was not doing any video call with them. And I was always with my mask for them to not see how my face was like declining. And finally, after that, in January, 2021, there was a point that I had such a, a scary moment at home when I realized that I couldn't even stand up to go to like the toilet or something like that. So I said like, this, this is enough. You, you just need to, to put yourself together and seek for help. And that's when I started to, to look for, for help. And I started therapy. I started with a dietitian. I'm so sorry. And oh, that's where my recovery journey started. Um, yeah. And now we are here. And very grateful for being here. And I'm sorry. so glad that you're here. And I know it's a day-to-day it's a -day struggle. It really is. Um, and you have to tell yourself today, I, I choose life. I choose food um, every single day. Thank you so much for, for sharing. Adam. Yeah. Thank you so much both of you for sharing that. And yeah, it's, it, it, it gets you every time you hear someone's story, how, you know, 
you, you hear you hear so many people's stories and they're just heartbreaking every single one of them. Um, yeah, my my eating disorder started when so I was really sort of happy orky kid. Well, apparently on the outside anyway, until I was about eleven. Um, when I was on holiday, I got a food virus um, in the sort of summer before I started high school. And it sort of was the first time I thought I had sort of thought about what I was eating, um, because food equaled pain equaled fullness. Um, when before that it was all fine. So and then I moved to secondary school, um, which is when we're eleven years old in the in the UK. Um, and be it, I got taken out of my comfort zone completely. Um, now not knowing then what I know now. Um, sort of ADHD autism as well factor that in being taken out of your comfort zone being taken out of your safe place um, I went to a coping mechanism and that plus the sort of fact that food started equal in pain um, and things like that just something clicked and <clears throat> I started sort of declining physically and mentally a lot as well and very reclusive when you know I'd be pacing the school corridors all the time don't know why I was doing it but I just did it because it was like looking for some sort of validation or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of immediately my parents took me for help. I was trying to get help from the, from the GP um, primary care and they just dismissed it. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't unwell enough at the time apparently. So I just dismissed it and told me to go on. Um, and I'll be honest, that was sort of it from sort of seeking help for the next sort of five or six years, really. Obviously I had physical issues, which were going on my, bowel condition was getting worse as well because about underlying bowel condition plus restrict plus malnutrition equals making it a lot worse. Um, so I started having a lot of tests on my bowel and everything. They could never find what was up because they were looking in the wrong place. But anyway, um, then I got to 15 and I started playing football, soccer again um, and started playing to quite a high level. So sort of where I was before. So sort of semi-professional level Um had opportunities to get higher, but my nutrition and my brain never let me do that, unfortunately. Um, but I was playing for three teams six, seven days a week. So that's when the exercise addiction started kicking in a bit because it was like it was seen as healthy because I was performing, I was doing well, and I was nourishing myself enough. So it sort of just started that seed. Um, and it was all okay, really, because I was sort of in that safe, I was in that nice sort of safe place again, I guess found my safe place um, through sort of my first set of exams, which are GCSEs in the UK, um, which is when you're 16. Um, but then when I was just before my 17th birthday, I broke my foot playing football um, and carried on playing football for a week or two after because I didn't want to admit it to myself. Yeah, it was painful. <laughs> um, but because I didn't want to admit it to myself, I stopped because I knew what it would do and it did. And that was the start of my sort of big, big relapse um, where I ended up going to university at 18 and after three months coming out of university, being, going to the hospital, not a, not a specialist unit, but a general hospital um, where I wasn't given any psychological input, no nutritional input at all, just told to stay there and get better, which wasn't helpful. Um, and then I was discharged, put under the crisis team who spent six months trying to fit me into a funding bracket and couldn't. And then since then it's been me and my family sort of supporting me to try and recover or find a niche where I'm at. But um, by that time, my 
bowel had prolapsed completely. So I had two operations on that. Now I've got a colostomy bag permanently because of it. Um, because my bowel's just completely knackered, um, completely gone, and it's still bad now. Um, it'll never get better. I've stunted my growth. I went for four or five years without any testosterone, so I've never developed fully as an adult. Um, and in terms of seeking help, sort of, I've had times, many times during that process where I realised I need help and need support, and my family's been pushing it all the way to get me help and support, but at every turn we were just, sent away so it was sort of so I've never received any being sort of support no formal support ever um, despite being hospitalised despite having had it for 14 years I've never had anything so it's just been family support and that's it really um, but now I'm, I've been working full time for five years now um, it's not been easy in the meantime um, still struggling with things and trying to manage things the best way I can because when you've got chronic bowel issues as well that plus trying to recover from me and sort of contradict each other massively um but it's just trying to find that fine line of management i guess which is really difficult but um we're getting there with it <laughs> we're getting there my god it just it literally breaks my heart to hear that and you're not the only one that gets turned away um uh, either like you're not underweight you're not sick enough like you, you don't have an eating disorder. It's just not a thing. And it's, it's a crisis. And it's, oh, it's just so, it's so sad. I so appreciate all of you for, for sharing your story and opening up your heart like this. Um, so that was a doozy of a question. <laughs> let's, um, let's talk about another, something that's also kind of hard. And these are all really challenging. So at, if at any point that you don't feel comfortable sharing, let me know and we can, we can stop. We can kind of pivot. So what would you say is the hardest part about recovery for you? Because it's different for every person and it's never a straight line. Uh, as I always say, it's you're going to have good days, you're going to have bad. So what's the hardest part for you all? And anyone can jump in. Um, I think the hardest part for me is restoring my relationships. I think my relationships really took a hard hit during my eating disorder. And it's been such a painful process. <laughs> it's been so hard to get them back to where they used to be, you know, like the people who were my best friends when I was growing up and um, care about me so much and were so concerned about me in the midst of my eating disorder. But I like held resentment towards them for like thinking I had a problem. Um, and yeah, and now people still are concerned about me and I'm like, I'm fine. Like, please stop worrying about me. Um, but I think, yeah, it's been really hard to get my relationships back to where they were just restoring that trust because I was definitely <laughs> deceptive in the midst of my eating disorder. And I recognize that. And I think it just takes a lot of time to build that trust back and yeah, just, get the relationships to be more even. Cause I also feel like in the midst of my eating disorder, I was hardly a friend or a sister or a daughter. Um, and yeah, so I'm still working on, you know, <laughs> really showing up for all the people in my life. And yeah, I think that's just been such an ongoing challenge for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, well, I in my case, I completely relate to Aggie too because I think the relationships have been uh, such a great, um, in my mind, worry. Like, are they going to ever see me like a normal person anymore? Like, are they going to trust me? Like, just re- what you said, like recovering the trust. Because we all know when we are with an eating disorder, we all lie. We are have weird behaviors. We do things that are not normal. So I just also want to say, like, if anyone is there listening, just like, forgive me because I was not being um, the Blanca that you know, because I was caught by the eating disorder. So please, like, like trying to get that trust and trying to get those relationships back is such a a hard part of this of the recovery journey but apart from that the, the about the relationships i think for me especially if we are talking about these ev behaviors and and things like that the sense of control i think for me during recovery like trying to get rid of those habits those routines those things that you have so internalized that actually make your eating disorder work right so just trying to get rid of all of those and sometimes also even have to say no to people that you know that they are not helping you even if they are supposed to be your friends and you know getting rid of those and people uh, situations relationships just being strong enough to say this is not good for me i'm sorry i'm just gonna pass that is also like really really hard for me and especially embrace the imperfection of recovery like recovery is not a linear progress like it's gonna be okay from the moment that you say oh yeah i want to recover no it's gonna be a roller coaster and you're gonna have ups and downs and precisely for us like that imperfection that afraid to be a failure in recovery is also a huge part yeah i I agree with both of your points and um i'd say there's two for me which are probably the first one's exercise i Got, I struggle with exercise a lot as well um, and trying to not do that um, trying to find another way of getting rid of or quieting my brain down I guess um, that's the best way I can describe exercise it's where quieting my brain down it's the only time my brain's actually quiet um, and trying to find that gap that was left when I couldn't play football anymore that was a big thing for me um, and that gap I think a big part of it was because my insult started when I was quite young so I've never I don't know who I am and I think that's the hard the, the one hardest part for me is what's my identity um who am I beyond that person um and knowing that that person won't be the person I was before that but it's a different person it's a person who's got multiple health issues to manage who's got to try and find that fine balance between everything um, that can be really tricky um, as well as like they said the relationship bits and everything else as well it's for me it's actually finding what makes me as a person tick um, which you know we all realise and I think eating disorders yes they're about food but food's often a symptom um, it, it's a it's and what's the you know I've always maintained that when I've been in my safe and happier places I've been okay and it's sort of trying to find that person that I am or want to be not even want to be a person I am and can be happy with um, and then everything else will hopefully start falling into place around that and I'd say that's probably been the hardest part for me I agree with with all of you and I think for me personally I I also struggle with guilt and like the shame around it just and like like you said Aggie like trying to like I 
I damaged a lot of relationships for so many years. I had anorexia for, I would say like 15 years, um, you know, got better, got, got some, got some weight on me and then dropped way back down. And it was just never a consistent thing. So no one could trust me. And I just, I feel really guilty. And so now I have to, I feel like I have to make up for lost time a lot. And I don't know that I really struggle with that too. And the comparison game is very real. Like, when I see other people that are supposedly on a diet, I start like going into overdrive mode and I'm like, why are they doing that? Maybe I should go on a diet and I have to quiet my brain down, like you said, Adam, and finding ways to do that, that won't hurt me or trigger the eating disorder voice has been really, really difficult. So I, I resonate with, with everything that you all said. So how in general has, you touched on it briefly, like through all of your all stories, but how has recovery changed you like mentally and emotionally? Are there certain life lessons that you gained through this process of recovery? As much pain as my eating disorder has brought me, there are so many things that have made me grateful for it and recovery. Well, recovery, I'm grateful for recovery, like, but I'm grateful for yeah, the opportunity it gave me to really reevaluate my life and think about what, who I want to be and what I am passionate about. And um, so I think the biggest thing I've learned in recovery is like how to use my voice and be my authentic self. And yeah, just find what feels good for me. I think um, growing up, like I was constantly like comparing myself to who I thought I quote unquote should be. Um, And I, there was always this like ideal version of myself that I was like, this is what I should be doing. And like, um, I would just totally got lost and out of touch with like who I actually wanted to be. I don't know if that makes sense, but just like that sense of like intuition around what I actually wanted to do and how I wanted to spend my time was like gone. Um, So I think that's what I've like gained in recovery that has just totally enhanced my life. Um, I'm so passionate about eating disorder prevention and treatment. Now I think um, recovery gave me the opportunity to, yeah, just share Like I'm here on this podcast sharing my story. I think it's, there's so much power in like owning your story and sharing it with the world and like other people can realize they're not alone in their struggles. So I really want to use my voice in that way. Um, I like started an initiative at Notre or at college um, and just to raise awareness about eating disorders. And I led these like body positive groups um, through the body positive. I don't know. It's an organization really dedicated. Yeah. yeah to <laughs> reducing eating disorders. Um, so anyways, I started that and led a lot of groups and like got so much positive feedback about it, but I, never ever would have had the courage to do that like in the before my eating disorder or anything like that but just because like it sparked like such I never want anyone to go through the struggle that I went through um and so that that's empowered me because yeah I I just want to do everything I can to help other people but in that way and also just yeah, what do I really want to value in life? Like, I, mm-hmm. I really like thinking every day, like, what do I want to spend my time doing? Like, um, and I live my life very intentionally. Um, and I think that has been such a shift that's been made in 
because of my eating disorder, honestly, because I was never, I never felt alive. Now I feel alive, like all the freaking time, like every single day, you know, like it's amazing. Like I'm so grateful to be alive. And like, I have so many things I'm passionate about. And like, I love trying new things and meeting new people. And like, that's just like, not who I was like in my eating disorder, even before my eating disorder, to be honest. So I just feel like recovery is just so great. <laughs> I love so, that. I yeah. love that. So worth it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we all know that we have gone through so much pain and still sometimes we go through so much pain. And I think that when you realize that you almost lost everything, I think that you, I sometimes feel like a, like a phoenix, like I like reborn from my own ashes. Like I just like, now I see life in such a different perspective. Like, oh my God, like you really have another chance, like someone the universe has given you another chance to live and, and really this time take care of yourself. I think during recovery, I've learned so, so much. Of course, thanks for many resources like this podcast, for example, but like I've learned so, so much of like how these mental illnesses can really destroy you from the inside to the outside, like completely. And not only you, but like people around you. And honestly, I think I've learned so much about myself that I completely, I was completely disconnected from my body and my, even my brain when I was with my eating disorder. And I think that I've learned to, instead of feel that, that guilt, that shame that we're talking about all the time, which sometimes still comes, but trying to work on that, like still, instead of feeling that, feel compassion and, and say, hey, I understand what you are going through. I, you need to be, compassion compassionate with yourself because you are going through something that is not it's not a normal situation you need to understand and like learning a little bit more why we engage in these behaviors why we tend to do this or that and try to say like you know it's okay it's it's just a coping mechanism you are not like a, any kind of weird person it's just like a mental illness that does this so just like i think mm, we've during this this recovery journey, we will keep learning about ourselves, about the disorder, but extremely grateful because I think that even though the hard the hardest part of the recovery, I think I have become, as Aggie said, like the best version of myself. And I want to give that back and help people as much as I can. Mm -hmm. And she hasn't mentioned it, but we started, we did the yoga teacher training because yoga helped us a lot at least I can talk yeah. for myself during recovery and being aware of my body and being aware of sensations and emotions. So through yoga, I'm hoping to help people to like find some calm and relief from, from these two. So I'm grateful yeah. for that, to, to be able to share that with people that need help. I love, I love that. That is, that is fantastic. That's how we met. Fun fact. Yoga teacher. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I think for me, it's made me a better person. Um, it's made me understand difference better. It's made me more aware of being inclusive with everything we do and supporting everyone for who they are. Um, you know, I'm, I, I wasn't, you know, I'm not saying I'm a bad person before it, but it's, it's, it's really heightened my awareness of being trying to be the best person I can be um, and respecting everyone um, 
it's also made me close to my family. Um, I know it can fracture relationships, but I also believe it can build relationships because the the way that we've all stuck together as a family um, and supported each other through it because, you know, your family struggle too, right? Um, I think it's made us all closer and understand each other better as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, I think, given me more of a purpose. You know, I've met some amazing people, um, some amazing friends, pr- proper friends as well just through social media and through peer support. Um, and without that, I wouldn't have had that. <clears throat> um, you know, I wouldn't have had the opportunities I've had. I wouldn't, you know, and I've been privileged enough to be on, you know, training videos for, th- for professionals and things like that. And it's just amazing to, and I think another part is that if I didn't have my eating disorder, I wouldn't know that I was neurodivergent. I wouldn't know that I was autistic and had ADHD. And I'd still be struggling with that and struggling with why do I feel this way and why do I feel different? But it's made me more aware of myself and how I can try and navigate my way through yeah. um, through the world and through life. Um, and look, it's not easy. No, there's no lying about it. We can't say it's all you know roses. And when people put on Instagram about recovery with all these fluffy flowers and black oh, eyeballs and all that rubbish, right? <laughs> it's just, it's, that's not recovery, okay? Recovery is messy a lot of the time. It's still messy even when you're in a stable position. But I think it's made me more aware of that and more aware that actually it's okay to be, say, you know, today's really bad. I'm really struggling today. And you can be honest about that. And then people, rather than pushing people away, actually bring people around to support you. It brings the right people around you to support you, exactly. not the people who you don't need, but the people who you do need. I think that's exactly. a real big win not a win but a real big sort of plus point for me it's hard to say what's what what has been positive about your eating disorder but i think we've got to be honest and say look there are positives it's brought to my life too um and i don't going back i don't think i could rent my eating disorder but i think the way that me my family and the way that life has reacted to that has been it, it's been the best it could have been let's put it that way Absolutely. Love. I agree with everything everyone has said so far. And I think my mom and I are so close because of the eating disorder. I think, you know, all of at first it was really, really hard. And she, I think because I come from a culture where eating disorders aren't really a thing, it's, oh, you just need to go to church more, <laughs> like something like that. And I'm like, no, I, I think like I really have a problem here. And by the time it finally clicked for them and going to family therapy, that was when my parents were like, oh, she needs help. And that really, we're closer than ever because of that. And and they recognize, oh, look, you don't talk about weight. You don't talk about how much someone is eating. It, all of those things people don't realize until you go through this with another person. So I, from that point, I, I really do value a lot of the relationships I have built, like you said. And emotionally i know i'm i'm strong and i can i can really handle anything because of what the eating disorder has thrown at me and continues to throw at me but i'm stronger because of it so um what are some of the so we're going to shift gears a little bit um we're going to talk about misconceptions about eating disorders because there are a lot of them <laughs> so what are some of the biggest misconceptions if i can talk today misconceptions about mental illness so eating disorders included 
But what are some of those misconceptions that you think really does need to change in the community? And how can we do a better job educating people about it? I think, you know, talking about it is one way, but are there other things that we can be doing? Um, I think eating disorders in some ways are kind of normalized in our society, just with the emphasis on healthy eating and being physically active. Adam, like you were saying, like, you get praised, like if you're exercising a lot or like you're choosing like the salad instead of the sandwich or something when you're out to eat with people. And I think that is just like so problematic and like really reinforces, um, yeah, disordered eating patterns that are so pervasive throughout our culture. Um, so I think like a big, yeah, fat, like, I don't know, fallacy, I guess, is that, um, yeah, healthy eating and like exercising are always good for you. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, so with eating disorders, like if someone is, yeah, eating healthy all the time and like exercising a lot, like it's important to recognize that maybe that's not the best thing. So I think that's kind of like a misunderstanding when it comes to eating disorders. And another big one, I think is just, I think there's a lot of internalized blame with eating disorders, like people blaming themselves for struggling with that. I know that I've definitely experienced that. And I'm like, it's my fault that I'm struggling with this. I need, I should be able to fix myself and like get out of this or I don't know, or like, um, so I think that's a big misconception too, is like, you cannot cause yourself to get an eating disorder. Like it's, it's not in your control, like whether you get an eating disorder or not, some people are just genetically predisposed to like struggling with these things. I think that's honestly something that I really struggle to work through. Um, like I hold that misconception myself and that's something that I need to get over. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a big one too. Yeah. Yeah, I I must say that I completely agree with Aggie because first, the, what uh, what she mentioned about healthy eating, I think many, many, many eating disorders are uncovered, like are precisely, sorry, covered by these healthy eating patterns that are so praised and so accepted in our society. So many people are struggling with that, but since they seem just to take care of themselves, it's fine and no one realizes that maybe these people need help because they are really like asking for help when they are precisely engaging in these behaviors. So I think that some, sometimes we need to be a little bit more critical when we see someone that is really obsessed with a healthy lifestyle and things like that because maybe that person really needs help and it's just like being covered by this well behavior that you have. Oh, I wish I could be as disciplined as you are and things like that because we are being praised all the time about our, our appearance, about our routines and that's precisely what really gets the eating disorder such a huge voice in mm -hmm. our heads. So I think that we need to really be careful when we approach someone and say those things. And then about uh, also what Aggie said, like for me, discovering actually that maybe having an eating disorder is not my fault because I wasn't looking for it, meaning my brain actually works differently. And thanks for all those researchers and this podcast, for example, for being able to like, make those voices louder and say, hey, something is going on with the brain here. These people are not to blame for having this disorder, as well as you don't blame schizophrenic people or any other people that have a disorder. Of course. So, I mean, 
also realizing that hey we have a, a mental illness as same as other people and we also need and, and have rights to have care and and resources and invest in, in research and all these things so i think all those ideas are still very like um, confused and all the stigma that is still going on there when talking about mental health i need i think i we really need to talk and talk and talk endlessly about this to be able to normalize it more in society yeah completely agree with both of you um 100 i think a big one for me as well is eating disorders and a you can't put them into a box they don't have a body size of an age gender or ethnicity anything um it can be anyone everyone you know <clears throat> i'm a man and you know i hadn't eaten so since i was a boy and you know i was told by the crisis team that you don't know what to do because you're a man you know um it's stigma like that which people don't understand and i think another thing people need to understand is that most people with eating disorders are not underweight most not some most the vast majority and then anorexia is not the most common eating disorder either um and it's the one we hear about the most because people tend to be the most physically unwell with it but it's not just a physical illness. It, it causes physical issues, but there are so many people who are, whose lives are severely affected by an eating disorder who are never physically unwell enough for it to be noticed. And that is something that's hugely, hugely missed um, and something we'd really need to be more aware of. Um, I think from a male perspective as well, we need to be more aware about how it affects men's bodies um, in maybe slightly different ways. Um, and this isn't, this isn't me sort of trying to, create barriers but me saying that when you have a questionnaire about anorexia you have a questionnaire about um people who menstruate and menstruation and periods have you lost your period big one okay no one asked me if i lost my testosterone so i went five six years without it didn't grow enough never developed as an adult properly um and these it's these things that we just need to be more aware of and i think that that there is a distinct lack of research in certain areas of eating disorders and hopefully that'll help um and the last thing I really want to just put down there is that we people with eating disorders and mental illnesses in general are often, like you said, they're often, we're often treated like we could just turn it on and off whenever we want to. You know, oh, it's it's we've had um, issues with calories being put on menus in the UK recently, and the amount of comments are just oh, you're pandering to a minority, or why can't it's healthy and so on. It's not. Okay, it's just not. Um, it's not healthy for someone without an eating disorder. Never mind someone with an eating disorder. Um, but the way we're treated, like a minority group, like we shouldn't be catered for. Like you know, eating disorders are an illness, just like any other illnesses, and we need to be more aware of that. And as you said, talking more is really important. But we can't just talk about the nice parts of mental health. We want to talk about. We need to talk about mental illness and the way that it can be how distressing and how debilitating it can be on people's lives because i think the real way we can get through to people is not to give this endless positivity spin it's about saying it's it's about giving that real life how hard it can be to live with that because it's that emotional connection that i really think will start hitting home with people rather than just the, the superficial stuff that we too often see like things podcasts like this are amazing because we're talking about that reality but i think when you put it into the mainstream it's too often, how can we put a positive spin on this? How can we make it look better? How can we, you know, maybe censor some of the information so it doesn't make people upset? 
And I think sometimes we avoid the reality because we want to try and protect people too much. And I think yeah. we need to sort of break down those barriers a bit more. That's a good point. That's, and the, the gap in research and the care that we have for, I don't know, we want it, we treat eating disorders like it's a cookie cutter thing, um, but every other disease is not treated in that way. So it's like a very personalized type of treatment, but eating disorders, oh, well, so you don't eat, right? Like that, that's how it's kind of lumped in. And that's just not how it is at all. And I just, yeah, your perspective, Adam, as, especially as a male, is just so critical. And I think now this up and coming thing about muscle building behaviors, especially among um, males and stuff is a big issue. And even among females, this bodybuilding industry, which is just highly unregulated, the amount of supplements that they have to use sends a lot of bad messages to people. Um, so, and we just had a podcast on that as well. And, and he's trying to do research on eating disorders in males and muscle building behaviors, but he's like, there's not enough funding for it. There's just not enough awareness about it. And it's just, it just drives me up a wall when, when we talk about it and the point about calories. Yeah. I wanted to dig into that a little bit more because it drives like my husband will always like pick a restaurant that doesn't have calories listed on the menu so that he knows I won't get triggered when we go or when we order something. Um, but not everyone has that constant support system next to them that can help them through that. My thing is, is like, is there data showing that having calorie counts on menus works, like makes people no. choose better? So like, there's no, why? there's no, there's no data to prove it, it. It makes about, I think on average, about 20 calories difference or something like that. It's ridiculous. Which is like it, a piece it, of gum. Yeah. It's far more likely to cause an eating disorder than it is to help anyone. It, it, if, it, if, it, if it was going to work, it would have worked when they put it on food labeling 20 odd years ago. But they didn't. Uh, I actually, I was going to say that I, I listened to a podcast that was actually trying to see if there was any evidence that this was like, where is this coming from in the UK? Why are they uh, trying to do this? And if there was any evidence of like any benefits on that? And it's yeah. exactly what Adam said, like maybe like 15 calories less. What, what is that really doing to society? Uh, I mean, if we compare with the damage that it's actually doing, right? And putting exactly. it on kids, put it, put it on children's menus as well. That's where I really draw the line. Like exactly. adults' menus, fine. Just if if you have to do it, just at least give us an option. But children's menus, no way. Exactly. Just, you, 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 we've got in the UK half about half of children have disordered eating now, and it's it's, it's ridiculous. And they're just, uh, it's basically what it is. It's it's especially in the UK, it's as a government that's looking for short-term, quick quick things that make it look good. So, oh, look, we're, we're trying to challenge the problem. We're trying to make a difference. Um, and because society views that as a, is within that sort of diet culture bubble, it makes it look like a good thing, even though there's zero evidence it helps um, and does a lot of harm as well. Uh, but they just don't, they don't listen to that. They just go, oh, it's 65% of the public say it'll be a good thing, so let's do it. That's what, that's what it is without listening to the experts or the actual evidence behind any of it just drives me nuts. Oh my gosh. But anyway, we went off a little tangent there, which is good. I always like that. <laughs> um, so one of the final questions um, I want to ask, cause we're closing um, getting close to the end here is, it's also, this is also really hard. Why do you think it's so difficult for people? I guess we touched on it a lot. You know, in the UK, we know that they turn you away for most of the time, but why is it so hard for people to seek help for their mental illness? There's a lot of factors involved, but what do you, what, what are your all's perspectives on it? I think from 
speaking from my own experience, like one thing that was so hard for me was realizing that it wasn't a problem that I could solve myself. Um, I think, and like needing to rely on other people for support. I think that's a really hard thing for me. And also people like a lot of people with eating disorders, I would say is really feeling like, um, yeah, they need additional support than, than they can, um, provide themselves. So I think that's like a big barrier to seeking help, um, is just wanting to fix it on your own. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that definitely I mean, from my own experience, I think my first struggle was to realize that I have a problem actually, like, because you live in denial for a long time at the beginning. Uh, so first you don't see the problem. And once you have started to see it, or maybe someone approaches you and says like, Hey, I think you have a problem. It depends. But once you see the problem, sometimes it's also very hard to accept that you cannot do it by yourself. As Aggie said that, no, I really need more support. So first realizing about the problem and then being strong enough to look for help and dealing with the shame of the guilt that that provokes you when you really have to like ask for help because right. as we all know we are all perfectionists we don't want help we mm-hmm. can do it ourselves right so that's another another thing that we need to struggle with and of course then the lack of resources if you are not a white woman young and are underweight you are not gonna fit the diagnosis of anorexia so you are not gonna have any help so, I mean, there are many, many steps that are, we have to go through to be able to really ask, receive the help that we need. Yeah, totally agree. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the self-stigma, the societal stigma, and then the stigma you get within services as well. It's just a complete culmination of everything. And I think the only thing I'd add to that is the lack of, there's the lack of resource for treatment. There's a lack of treatment options as well. So your treatment options are very much geared towards anorexic anorexia gain weight basically force feed you gain weight and then yep. do a little bit of stuff but then discharge you when you're not really recovered and then you just go back into a spiral again and um there's no um neurodivergent friendly therapy out there for eating disorders it's all basically forced change routine which can be really overwhelming and distressing for people as well not just people neurodivergent but everyone else as well we need more you know flexibility with within treatment um and the final one is society views health one way. So if we are fulfilling what society says is healthy, we don't think there's a problem in the first place, so we won't seek help. I think that's a huge barrier in people accessing help is they don't think they've got a problem, not just because they're in denial, but because all of society is in denial as well. And I think that's a huge problem and sort of compounding the issue, I guess. Yeah, completely agree. It's... It's almost depressing to think about, but at the same time, if we don't talk about it, nothing is going to change. And I think that's why I try to look at it from a policy perspective too. Sometimes what are the policy things that need to be in place? How can we advocate to our our lawmakers and policymakers um, to really just help create change? And I think if you're loud enough and that's the power of advocacy, you can create change. And a lot of times the change is, is not good, but we need to come together. There's strength in numbers. And, and that's why I've, I find a lot of refuge in, in other people and hearing their stories and, and just having common ground with, with everyone. 
So, okay, this is going to be the final question. I like to ask this to a lot of my guests um, as the final as the final question. So, for listeners out there who you know maybe this is their first time listening to the podcast um, and they want to get help, they know something is just not quite right, and they know something needs to change. But so, what is your advice to them? But they're feeling alone. They're afraid to take that first step towards recovery. What's your advice to them? Well, first of all, I have a lot of empathy for someone who's in that position because it's really, really hard to be struggling and it takes a lot of courage to, um, yeah, take that step towards recovery. One thing that really helped me and may help you if you're listening and struggling right now is thinking about what your ideal life would look like in the sense of like, how would you want to be feeling every day? Um, like, I think that question my dad asked me, like, what makes you feel alive? When's the last time you felt alive? Like when I couldn't answer that question, I was like, oh my gosh, like what? Oh, like, I don't even know. I don't even have words right now. Like I was like, wow, like this is really, really not how I want to be living my life. Like I I want to live a life in which I'm happy and free and connected with people around me and yeah, getting so much joy out of every day. So I think kind of just like imagining that for yourself, picturing that in your head, that that could be a life in which you have, like, even if it doesn't feel like accessible right now, just like, even just imagining it, imagining it as a possibility. um, I think that can be so empowering. And then just doing the, taking the small step to get there, whether that be like, like connecting with someone that day, because you know, that connection brings you joy or like, yeah, it doesn't even need to be like, oh, you're calling a, a therapist and eating disorder therapist or something and trying to get help. Like it can just be a small thing to like get your life back in the way you want to live it. Um, so that's the advice I would give. Love that. I love that. I, I completely agree with Aggie. I think for me, it was also this moment when I was, I realized that I just couldn't live with that anymore. And just thinking about like, do I want this forever? Do I want my life to be like this forever? Depressed with no purpose, completely sad and disconnected from myself and my body and my 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 friends and my family? No. So I know it's so hard. I know it's, it's terrible to realize that you really need help. But if you are in that situation, just like small steps are, are making such a difference. Like even if it's what, what Aggie said, like if even you connect with someone, you start talking with someone and you open up, you tell someone that you are struggling and you can get help with many other ways. And just think that it's so much worth it, that you are not your eating disorder. You are much more than that. And it's so worth it. We only live once. And even if it's hard, the only way out is through. So if you really value your life and you want to recover your life, just you have to be strong enough and you, you really want to recover. And a small step will make such a difference. So go for it and just, it's worth it. I, <laughs> we, we all know it is worth it. So go for it, please. I love that. Um, I can't really beat that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, the, the, the thing I'd say first is, you're valid. Whatever you're feeling, you're valid. The second thing is that if you're thinking you might need some support, you do. Um, and if you're thinking that things could be better, then that means that things need to change. 
um, because you don't deserve to have a poor quality of life. You know, every, everyone's quality of life is different to them, but you don't deserve to have a worse quality of life because of because you're struggling alone. Um, and you know, yes, help is difficult to find out there, but it is out there. Um, there's and there's more than just professional help, as you said. There's peer support. There's people, and let's just start bringing people around. Bring people towards you. Don't push them away, because there's more people who want to help you than want to run away from you. Um, and if those people want to run away, they can go and never come back because they don't deserve to be part of your life. Yeah. Um, but you, you do deserve people who, if you're struggling, you deserve help. Um, and you know, just making that step is is terrifying, but living a life with an eating disorder is even more terrifying. So honestly, making that step will be worth it. Exactly. No, I love all of that. That is just so true. And I know listeners, I hope that they will take that to heart and really just heed the advice of, of people that have been through it before and understand the struggle and, and the life beyond the eating disorder. Um, are there, does anyone have any last thoughts before we close? Again, I want to thank you all so much for just being here today for everything that you're doing, using your story. Cause it's hard to do to just step out of your comfort zone and, and share your heart with everyone. Um, but this is just so, I know it can really change lives. So I appreciate all of you today, but if you have any last thoughts before we close, I'd love to hear them. I just wanted to say that I am so grateful for all of you for, for sharing, for wanting to help. This is such an amazing podcast. Thank you so much, Naomi. Thank you all. Adam, Aggie, like, this is great. And I really hope that we can just like give a little bit of a push with someone that is struggling and wanting to seek for help and just like, it's so worth it. So thank you so, so much for everything. Yeah. Yeah, I reciprocate that. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. Definitely. I have no words right now. I'm very grateful. <laughs> well, I loved talking with you all and we will try and do this again some other time so we can have even more perspectives and be even more inclusive of other, of other groups. So thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed my fascinating, amazing, just I have no words to even describe my conversation with Adam, Blanca, and Aggie. It was just wonderful. And I can't really find a better way to end the podcast on that note of how terrifying but rewarding seeking help is for your eating disorder. It's just, it's so scary to take that step. But if you're listening and you're really scared and you really don't know where to turn, please feel free to reach out to anybody that you feel comfortable with. If that's, you know, maybe someone that just doesn't really know you and you just need to talk to someone, that is such a brave and wonderful thing that you are doing. And I can't stress enough how amazing amazingly strong that you are being for even just taking that step so i hope that this conversation and the stories from aggie adam and blanca really just illuminate for you how empowering it can be to really lean into who you are embracing your identity apart from the external things like your weight or the size of your clothing because all of that just doesn't matter 
And that's all I'm going to say for now. And if you have any other thoughts, if in the future you are interested in sharing your story, please feel free to reach out to me. I want to try to incorporate more of this. I want to hear from listeners. I really want to try and underscore just how empowering lived experience is and how far you can go in your life just by being you. And I hope you feel loved and safe and valued wherever you are, wherever you are going this week. Um, I have much love for all of my listeners. Until next time, everyone.